dirty dozen. Yeah, it's hard to, to not crack up a little bit there. So, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Yeah. My name's Nick. My name's Ray. Today, we're going to tackle one of my all-time favorite movies. I've seen this at least ten times. It was a regular on television for many, many years. It's the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. This was made in 1967. Very successful at the time. It was directed by Robert Aldrich, who is known to be someone who flirted with controversy and politics. He's someone who worked with Bronson three times previous to this movie with Four for Texas in uh, 1963, uh, Vera Cruz in 1954, and Apache in 1954. My favorite of his movies of all time, though, uh, is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is unbelievably cool. Some people will describe it as like a horror movie, but it's got Betty Davis versus Joan Crawford in this kind of twisted uh, noir from L.A. in the in the 60s, early 60s. So this is the same director. He was supposed to do Death Hunt, too, but then he ends up backing out. So he was supposed to reteam with Bronson and Marvin a little later. And I don't uh, I forget. Who does direct Death Hunt? Do you remember? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's Peter Hunt, the guy who did like uh, the James Bond movie. He's most known for uh, Majesty's Secret Service. But, you know, that gets me thinking like Lee Marvin, too. He's somebody who goes way back with Bronson, who's in a few movies with him. You know, going back, I think they're like 51, 52. Both of them are uncredited in um, The Diplomatic Courier. Another one is You're in the Navy Now, 1951, when Charles Bronson was actually Charles Baczynski. Just bit players then. You could never really say those guys wouldn't have stole the scenes that they were in, obviously. Oh, certainly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this is a pretty cool movie. One thing about it, it's an ensemble cast with a, a lot of star power. We're going to get a little bit into all that today. And um, yeah, I guess we should start off with our one-minute summary. Give the whole rundown in this movie in 60 seconds, and you're going to do this this time around. This movie's two and a half hours long, so I'm going to try to cram all of the pertinent and key details into a one-minute synopsis. Nick's going to give you the whole rundown here in uh, in one minute. Yeah, and you know, spoiler alert for sure, but I've seen this movie literally, like I said, 10 or 11 times, and it didn't matter. <laughs> it's The, the ending is, is equally as uh, stirring and disturbing uh, as it was the first few times I watched it. So, okay, here it goes. You got you got a stopwatch ready? Yeah. All right. Okay, just say when. Okay. Go. The Dirty Dozen, starring Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, Telly Zavallis, Donald Sutherland, Ernest Borgnine, Jim Brown, John Cassavetes, Clint Walker, and an impressive number of A-list supporting actors is a World War II action movie about a secret operation happening in concert with the Allied D-Day invasion. Lee Marvin is a fiery, impatient, and somewhat insubordinate Major Reisman, who is tasked with what looks very much like a suicide mission to infiltrate a German-occupied chateau in France, kill all the Nazi generals on site, and escape back to the coast to meet the invading troops for D-Day. Complicating matters, his team for the mission is to consist of military convicts sentenced to death or life imprisonment. The bulk of the movie is Marvin confronting the limitations of his soldiers and the inability slash madness of, the, of his superiors. Some great sequences of team building, subtle character development, and overcoming obstacles add up to the denouement. Marvin's team parachuting behind enemy lines to complete their mission. The end result is all-out carnage with 11 of the 12 killed in combat. Uh, the Nazis and their female companions incinerated in what is most certainly a, a war crime and an escape back behind allied lines uh, for the surviving three, which is Marvin Bronson and uh, prison sergeant played by Richard Jackal. Whew. Yeah, I don't think that was, I think that was just a shade over a minute there. I don't know. There, there was some hesitation at the end. 
at the end of the mission, yeah. at the end of the mission, there was some, a little bit of hesitation, but no, you were, you were right in there. That was, that was good. That was a good rundown of what happens. Well, thank you. And you know, it's funny to just say that uh, there was no hesitation at the end of the mission, because certainly the one again, spoiler alert, but at the end of this mission, somehow they get from this exploding chateau being chased by Nazis uh, way back to the coast um, uh, to, to meet up with the allied troops that are, that are landing for, for D-Day. And there's no explanation how they did that. <laughs> Bronson's pretty badly wounded, <laughs> but they managed to get back. And uh, I don't think it was important to know. I just, you just assume that they got back based on their own skills and, and talents. Well, like you say, the movie is two and a half hours long as it is. So the, like the lengthy uh, chase through the French countryside <laughs> probably wasn't going to be necessary at that point. I think we saw what happened to everybody and like, as if someone's stopping Marvin and Bronson in that armored vehicle. Yeah, fair enough. And you know, so that gets me right back to the very beginning of the movie. I didn't count the minutes, but it has to be 15 minutes minimum before there's any credits. There's no real intro per se. It just jumps right into the action. Well, Major, what'd you think of the hanging? Looked very efficient. Then again, I'm not an expert. I meant, uh, how did you personally feel about it? It wasn't the nicest way to spend an evening. Yes. Well, it wasn't stage for your entertainment, you know. I hope the private gardener is aware of that. Private who? Private gardener. He was the object of the exercise. Got your service record here, Major. A lot of fireworks, a lot of transfers, one tough scrape after another, very short on discipline. Very short. So just to say, this is an ensemble cast. Like, it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and all the supporting cast characters are just A-list character actors from Hollywood. Some of them did literally dozens and dozens of movies, no pun intended. So yeah, there's a great intro with Lee Marvin. Who's Lee Marvin is essentially the star of this movie, but you know our focus is really Charles Bronson. The movie is, a, I think, an extraordinary vehicle for Bronson. It really introduced me to him for the, for the first time. Yeah, for sure. The movie's funny in, in terms of who it focuses on. Like Marvin is consistent all throughout the whole movie. But when I was watching it, and I don't think I'm getting too far ahead of the conversation, it's really kind of split into two halves. I, the sort of the first half of the movie is Marvin and Cassavetes to me like Cassavetes gets a ton of screen time in the first half as Franco uh, this is this sort of belligerent kind of crazy guy who never wants to listen to Marvin but then as soon as they get near the mission Cassavetes kind of fades into the background and then Bronson takes over and the second half of the movie is the Marvin Bronson show yeah and I would even add Jim Brown too I think Jim Brown really kind of steps into the foreground he becomes a much more central figure. And at the end of the movie, he's really the one that completes the mission more so than anybody else. Yeah. And there's a fun, there's some interesting stories around that and, and the different personalities and these guys sort of vying for screen time in this huge cast. So like how those things ended up getting there. I read some pretty cool stuff sort of, you know, researching this one. I watched the movie so many times that I, I didn't, I didn't think to research this one as much. So I'm excited to hear what your notes will uh, unearth. But one thing I do know is that it's filled with actors. This was either a pinnacle moment for them in their career, or they had had teamed up with Bronson previously or afterwards. Like Ernest Borgnine's in this movie. He was in Jubal with Bronson several years previous. Uh, Samson Posey's played by Clint Walker, who's an 
just incredible physical presence in this movie like yeah it's like a superhero yeah he would have been an incredible superman that guy yeah i don't know how anyone could be handsomer or bigger yeah, he's a, a mountain of a man just massive yeah. <laughs> but yeah he's just got these piercing blue eyes uh and cool hair but yeah he, he's also in the white buffalo in 1977 okay yeah i haven't seen that one in a while too i didn't realize he was in that i when i first watched this as a little kid i I think I remember crying when John Cassavetti's character dies, <laughs> you know, cause you know, you're, you're invested in these as a kid. And he gets, he gets so close. He does. Too. Yeah. He's already, he's yeah. in the truck leaving, yeah, escaping. Yeah. I remember this, like as a kid, just thinking that he had the coolest haircut, you know, rewatching this now after so many years, I realized that, you know, my own hairstyle, it's really from these two characters as a little kid thinking how cool they look. Anyway, uh, he also, it's no, really noteworthy that he's one of the most celebrated independent filmmakers in American cinema. And this movie was something that he did right before he released his first big independent film called Faces. I would guess that this movie probably bankrolled his first several independent films, which is also kind of cool. Well, apparently, too, it kind of brought him back into the Hollywood mainstream. He's one of these renegade guys who would. He would do mainstream films to bankroll his art films. I don't know how popular they were in the time, but certainly they last as sort of cult favorites. But he apparently, in a film before, his part was cut and he punched the director in the face. <laughs> you can believe he it. He was blacklisted from Hollywood. And then Aldrich kind of brings him back uh, in this movie by casting him in this movie he was like on the outs and people didn't want to cast him in their mainstream uh, flicks until until Aldrich takes him on in this and it, so it's sort of you know I don't know if it saved his career but in some ways it you know it certainly allowed him to go on to do what he ended up doing yeah like Rosemary's Baby shortly after this and it's interesting too that you said that because you know Robert Aldrich was known as somebody who had a crew of actors that he was pretty loyal to. Like if yeah. you look through his filmography, Ernest Borgnine was in a lot of movies that, that he directed. Yeah, Charles Bronson too was in, in in several. So I think there's something to that that he was he was someone who attracted kind of big personalities and got the got the best of them. I came across an interesting quote. Apparently, he said. If my films have any central theme, it's that a man is bigger than the things around him. You can measure him not by his successes, but by the way he struggles. So that's how he summed up sort of his whole filmography. So you're talking about big personalities. And that's what he's saying. His, his stories are about watching how a man struggles and judging him on how he does it. Yeah, that's that's cool. It's it's also I think interesting with him that he was someone who grew up extremely wealthy, but then he was cut off. His political views uh, alienated from his very Republican family, and they literally cut him out of their will. And so he had to make a go at it on his own, and he became quite politicized as a result. And like some of the films he made, uh, I think it's Apache is is one with Burt Lancaster who plays an indigenous character. And he's put in the, as a protagonist, like he's the hero of the film, which was a little bit unheard of at the time. And uh, it, was, it was a very popular movie. He was able to tell stories in reverse, you know, even this movie, I won't get too far into my end thoughts on it, but it's a backhanded action movie. There's a lot of politics in this movie that are super interesting and of the time, you know, late 60s, uh, Vietnam era, 
in this film, he doesn't strike me as someone who's a fan of war. No, although he did, I also read he pushed back a bit because people in interviews would always bring up Vietnam and a lot of people received it as like an anti-Vietnam movie, but he totally rejected that idea. Like they started making this movie in like 65, long before like the sentiment in the US swung against the Vietnam War. And he's like, if you thought we had some crystal ball and thought we were like, that's what we were doing, you're crazy. Like we, it wasn't a Vietnam statement. It was just in general, like he was dealing with the war and he was, he had some pretty strong ideas about it, but he wasn't doing like a, a Vietnam commentary at the, when he made it or so he says. Yeah, I can see that being true too. I mean, there's undercurrents of the, of the era, you know, like even the civil rights movement, having Jim Brown in the film and his role, like one of the coolest parts of the movie, they go from prisoner to prisoner and kind of give a bit of a background and uh, Marvin's going around interviewing each of them and just telling them what the story is. And Jim Brown's in prison because he killed a couple of guys. Uh, maybe you think I should have let those cracker bastards go right ahead and castrate me. And seeing what those guys were trying to do to you, I'd say that you had uh, considerable justification. Thank you, Mr. Major, sir. I really do thank you for that. But the court didn't agree, right? So where does that leave you? I'm offering you an alternative which means you can keep on fighting. Who for, Major? For yourself, if you want. But the Krauts, they're the real master race merchants. That's your war, man, not mine. You don't like the Krauts, Major, you fight them. Me, I'll pick my own enemies. That's your privilege. But you won't be able to exercise it much longer. Guard, because on March 25th, you have a date with the hangman. That's just six days from now. Politically at that time, that was probably something you may not have seen 10 years earlier. Like a lot of that stuff comes from the book too. I'll talk about the book a little bit later and there's actually way, way, way more of that in the original source material. Tons of it has to do with Jim Brown's character and a couple other characters. And so there's a lot more of that kind of commentary and those kinds of issues come through in the book. But it would have been a 10-hour movie if they kept it all in. So. Yeah. I was going to say one thing more about Aldrich is it's pretty interesting that he cast a lot of uh, World War II veterans as the stars in this movie, too. So while it might have been a Vietnam-era film, it was very much anchored by World War II and the personal experience of the actors in it, who I'm sure provided a strong authenticity to their roles. They all had actually been in the war and in their own lives so yeah the authenticity is pretty pretty off the charts 20 years earlier though we were, talk- <laughs> we were talking earlier about how like the movies made you know they're filming it in 66 or whatever and the cast of characters is like while all amazing are almost certainly too old to be playing the, the <laughs> roles that they are yeah, I joke that they maybe they were arrested in World War One. Yeah. They're all you're pushing forty, if if not more, you know. Yeah. I think Bronson, if this is sixty six, Bronson's forty six years old. Yeah. Well, so speaking of Bronson. Yeah. How does Bronson enter this movie? What are, what's the first time we see him? The Bronson entrance. Is it a signature Bronson entrance? Is it a little different? What do we get? Why 
Waters Law, T, Death by Hanging. So yeah, uh, T. Waterslaw or Vatislav, I, I'm guessing, and uh, he looks great, man. He's you know he's like I said, about 45, 46, and he's uh, like the rest of these guys. He's pretty grizzled. Uh, there's a scene shortly after this where uh, Lee Marvin visits him and meets him in his cell and tries to convince him to join, you know, his his dirty dozen mission. And uh, yeah, there's it's sort of suggested that that Bronson um, is there because he killed a superior officer who kind of deserved it, and uh, you know he did it to save the lives of his fellow soldiers. So, yeah, mostly all of the characters there's some sympathy. John Cassavetti's character there isn't, but certainly Bronson, Jim Brown, um, not Telly Savalas. No, no, Telly Savalas is the one dark horse in this whole movie who's just like a total creep. Yeah. It's hard for me to to remember all of the crimes, but some of them are pretty bad. And one of the things about the movie is like they're bad guys. Like they're not it's not like sugarcoated. It's not like he was falsely accused or like you can kind of imagine a movie that did that where there were this ragtag crew, but they're kind of misunderstood. It's not really the case here. Like these guys all did something bad. There's a couple of rapists in the crew. Like, these aren't guys that you immediately have any sympathy for. Yeah, like, Tully Savalas is a, is a racist, he's a rapist, and he's a murderer. He doesn't really redeem yeah. himself at any point. Like, he has a sense about him that's comical. Like, he's larger than life because he's Tully Savalas. He's funny to watch. I was thinking about this earlier. Like, he's funny to watch, but he's not funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's the movie does this weird dance with these guys where there is kind of a lot of comedy, but then you're reminded of how twisted the situation is and what a lot of these guys' backgrounds are. For me, the whole movie is basically these guys fighting against the military. You know, either they've been convicted rightfully of of some pretty heinous things, or they've been squeezed between a rock and a hard place by the army or the air force. Yeah, it's it, or they're just put in weird situations, and they're just aggressive individuals, and they just make terrible choices too. We go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want. That's what they want. Those idiots in there—they're gonna get chopped. Every last one of them. Men aren't even do for hanging. You, you slob, you slob. What do you think you got coming? This is a film that comes before Bronson's really huge breakout. So this is maybe one of the big uh, roles for him that really starts to distinguish him as a superstar. And then he goes off to Europe shortly after and he comes back and he does all the, the most incredible films of his career. Yeah, I love his role in this movie. It's it's a little understated, next to Jim Brown, next to you know Clint uh, Walker, or whatever his name is. He's pretty small. You know, uh, Donald Sutherland's like six foot five. Telly Savalas is a pretty big man, and you got Bronson, who's you know he's built, but he's five foot eight or something like that in real life. But apparently Aldrich liked to play tricks on him too. Is one thing that I read. Like when the guys have to line up in some of the shots, he would purposefully put Bronson between uh, Donald Sutherland and Clint Walker, who are both these two towers. And like he wouldn't say anything about it. He would just put Bronson there and make him stand there and just start laughing. And stuff. I'd love to read about the behind the scenes relationships that were happening. You know, it's well known that uh, Lee Marvin was a big drinker. There's talk of of how Bronson confronted Lee Marvin for being drunk all the time during this film. I read that story in a couple different places. So I don't know if it's 
grown in legend as it got passed around the internet or how true it was but apparently Brunson said he was going to kill him yeah why don't you claim that he was going over the hill what the hell are you talking about claimed he was going over the hill my outfit was pinned down by the most murderous crossfire you ever saw half of them bleeding to death and this lover he took off like a jackrabbit okay you touch on it a little bit but i think one thing we like to talk about always is where in Bronson's career this movie falls and so speaking of him being already a little older like the arc of Bronson's career being so interesting he toils away for a long time really bit parts non-speaking parts they try him as a lead in a couple of movies that kind of period of his career culminates with his own tv show and so he's like the star of a TV show for whatever, like two years or something like that. And then he ends up with the another 10 years of this time parts of amazing ensembles. Like he's in all the greatest movies that have like a big crew of manly actors. Bronson is in everyone you can name, basically. Yeah, especially the, the good ones anyway. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's lots of those movies that we wouldn't mention. Who knows? But yeah, Dirty Dozen happens just before he goes to Europe. And yeah. that was a big step for him because he became an international superstar after this. So this was one of his last big American films before he went to Europe and really kind of distinguished himself. Yeah, because I think he, well, I think he took off as a personality in popularity more so than was happening in North America, right? So while he was in these great movies, he was sort of frustrated in this perpetual supporting role that he was always in. The, the fact that it took so long for like the North American audience to come around to him, he was left with a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Like he carried this around for the rest of his career. Like it seems from lots of anecdotes that people tell. He, there's so many faces in this film where you're like, oh yeah, like that's someone who I've definitely seen in many, many movies. For sure. And you kind of place them is really fun when you watch a film like this, an ensemble movie like this, and trying to track down each of these actors and, and see what they were in previously. And, and then afterwards, someone like Ernest Borgnine, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, oh, it's the guy from Airwolf. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? Sure. Yeah. And then you realize, <laughs> no, no, Ernest Borgnine was in, you know, a hundred incredible movies and it's like yeah and he's know. won all kinds of awards and stuff too but well you could do worse than being airwolf though <laughs> okay so what do you want what do we want to get into next about this movie there's so much to talk about with it firstly no mustache in this film no mustache is this coming off uh like a, mus a mustache period and he shaves it off for the movie or is this like is this part of a no mustache period for him all the films that i've seen of him in the 60s he has no mustache although i'm sure there's probably a movie or two that i haven't seen somehow that he has a mustache but it's not as it's not as kind of signature trademark look at yeah. this point that's for and, sure. and the big movies in the 60s magnificent seven great escape this one all no mustache so yeah. yeah, another story I was reading was that he he really really didn't want to cut his hair for this movie. Yeah, it's short. Oh, uh, there's a story I think Donald Sutherland tells this story where Aldrich uh, gets on the phone or he at least acts like he's on the phone with Bronson's uh, agent in America, and he says, "Hey, hey, Charlie, um, you, are you going to cut your hair here, or or do you want him to fly over and do it for you, or something like that?" And basically doesn't give him any choice. And then he ends up doing it. But yeah, so he was resistant. He didn't want the sort of mil military 
cut. That's something I appreciate about this movie, though, you know, is that the the aesthetic is pretty realistic. It wasn't the kind of movie that cuts any of those kinds of corners. And because at the time you'd see films like that where it's like, oh, yeah, this is a this is a Western. But that guy's clearly coming out of 1970. Right. You know, this is not a film like that. This yeah. is very authentic in terms of the style and the look and the pacing. Yeah, his hair looks great. He, he's got short military style hair. You know, I mean, there's not much to say. He's wearing fatigues the whole film, except for when he's dressed like a Nazi. Yeah. Great scene of him and, and Marvin entering this Nazi-occupied chateau that's filled with, with Nazi generals. But there's not a lot to say about what he wears in this movie, unlike most Bronson movies where there's stuff to discuss. This one, he's really in fatigues the whole, the whole film. So Big Ray, I know you usually delve way deeper into the music aspects of each film than I do. Uh, what stands out for you in this one? For me, this was a really weird, a weird soundtrack. The soundtrack's by by uh, Frank Duvall. Although if you buy the album, it's just music by Duvall. He just went by his last name. Uh, this guy, he was like a band leader. People like Rudy Valley and Dinah Shore and stuff. And he actually gets his, his start in movies with Aldrich. Aldrich brings him on and he ends up doing a whole bunch of Aldrich movies and he ends up getting nominated for like five uh, Oscars this guy throughout his career yeah so but there's some funny stuff about him like the thing he's most famous for uh, is a little bit later in his career he actually writes the theme for My Three Sons and he actually writes the theme for the Brady Bunch (laughs) so you've known you've known uh, at least one Frank Duvall composition your whole your whole life the music's well done it's in, it's extremely well crafted uh and no doubt um this is what they were after uh but it does for me it just sort of takes away from the seriousness of the film you know there's this great hard-boiled military uh characters story mission action and then on the other side there's this comical you know saturday matinee style music and i don't know i think it takes the movie down a a, a notch not in quality necessarily just in seriousness or impact and i think that's by design like aldrich has this terrible unsympathetic crew of just awful guys and they're going to do something that's you know you could debate their mission (laughs) as well and so there's all this darkness in the movie but he totally colors the whole story with comedy and with this super light music. I think if you closed your eyes at most parts of the, you know, through the Dirty Dozen and somebody told you you were watching like a Bob Hope war film, that you would probably buy it. Like it's very much almost like Disney-ish kind of Peter and the Wolf with instruments doing these little comedic flourishes, like this kind of stuff. And it, it is kind of strange. Yeah, I guess it's just that this movie's got such star power and, and like the story's great. They blew just an enormous amount of money on the sets. And yet this music, I just, yeah, I just feel like it, it could have been even more impactful. Like this movie could have been a serious classic. I mean, it is an action classic, but I think it could have been even more if they hadn't made this aesthetic choice with the music that they picked. Major Reisman reports. Where's the general? Like the movie is taking sort of a an older style 
and then it's 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 kind of slipping in this sort of nihilistic anti-war sentiment and it's kind of sneaking up on you because you're watching this thing with this light music and this humor and stuff and it's just like wait what did these guys do like uh, tell me uh, what do you think about Trini Lopez singing a whole song right in the middle of the movie by the Trini way Lopez quits the movie uh, at the urging of Frank Sinatra because the shoot is going on quite long and and Frank says like ditch this movie you got you got to keep getting some product out in the states for your music career and so he leaves the character isn't initially supposed to die and they just have him die off screen in the parachute drop but that wasn't the, in the original script that's because he left but not before he could film his musical scene and put a, a song in the movie great, yeah, great song he too. sings the song bramble bush uh, which is on the soundtrack and which is a big hit like the movie spawns a hit single I think coming in the 50s, there were lots of songs in the movies. And in the 60s, it seems like they always tried to keep one. Like they always tried to have a song on the soundtrack, even if it's kind of shoehorned into the movie like it is here. Like, let's just make one of the soldiers a singer and we'll have them sing this song and we, we can put it out. But it was a big hit. Yeah, it's a real Tin Pan Alley move too. You know, putting music into a film, a song into a film, and then having it played uh, in a specific moment, kind of like an early music video, where then people would leave the movie theater and want to go buy and listen to the album. So they would have this built-in, you know, marketing uh, structure for recorded music that would allow the producers to make even more money from the film. And uh, maybe that's a good segue, you know, thinking about the, how this movie is a bit of a transition from one era to the next, a good uh, transition too from, for us to talk about the substance of this film. I think all these years later, we've so many, seen so many ripoffs of Dirty Dozen, so many movies inspired by Dirty Dozen, even the same kind of three act where the middle act is war games. Like how many movies did we see in the 80s where there's like a war games or a capture the flag segment like everybody took that and then this ragtag crew has to like, um, you know, come through in the end in the real situation. Like even stuff like Police Academy and stuff would would ripped off this same thing. But in this movie, like they pretty much all die and most of them are bad guys. So the movie has like uses them up like the military this is why they've picked them and in the end they succeed and they do die and you're kind of like well do they redeem themselves i don't i'm not i don't really know if they do redeem themselves i think the movie's really strange in that way it doesn't leave you it didn't leave me with a lot of answers like i don't i don't walk away from the dirty dozen with a message so much yeah what did you think about it i i literally watched this movie all those times as a, as a kid and a teenager and never really picked up that at the end of the movie, they corral all these Nazis and their female companions into the cellar of this chateau. And they could just throw some grenades down there and blow them up. But instead they decide to dump, you know, multiple liters of gasoline down this, the air vents, right? So, so much gas. Yeah. And there's no one who just questions it. Like, it's not a thought. Like, they just do it. There's this incredible scene where Jim Brown does this, like, 50-yard dash and gets gunned down. But he manages to throw a live grenade into each of those vents. And 
And so, yeah, I guess my big takeaway from it is it's a weird climax to have the ending be essentially, you know, these guys committing an incredible war atrocity. Yeah. But I mean, I think that was the point, right? The, ultimately, my guess is that um, Aldrich is trying to suggest that war is thankless. It's bad. It's it's not. No one wins, right? These guys who are kind of pinned down by their their place in the military, they fight and they they have no real choice but to accept the suicide mission. They almost all die, and then in the end, the guys who lived basically lived through these horrible atrocities and they go get shipped back home. And there's a sense throughout the whole movie, which I think is something we haven't touched on, but the madness of the of the brass like the generals on both sides are portrayed as being loose cannons but i think yeah the the big the big kind of takeaway for me at least i guess is that um war is thankless and and terrible and everybody loses yeah yeah i think it's an like it's it's sort of in the tradition of some classic war books in that way like all quiet on the western front sort of thing or generals die in bed or whatever when you find out that the the higher ups are just as much your enemy if not more than the people that you're you're shooting at i think it's definitely sort of in that zone but at the same time it's a stirring action movie where they are go, like they're going to kill a bunch of nazis which is you know like like it's funny all he the movie does kind of have its cake and eat it too in that respect and I think it does pretty well at it. Like you can have that conversation like that we're having, but at the same time, it does manage to walk the line and have one foot in those older war movies where, you know, there's a secret mission to get some Nazis and it's hard to argue with that, you know? A lot of explosions and oh, there's some good fights. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting that way. It does kind of do both things at once. And the mission is just to just to sort of reiterate how bad it is, or or I don't know who am I who am I to say, but the the plan is basically to go there and kind of kill everyone, and in doing so, we'll probably hit a bunch of really important Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> like that that's literally the plan. Just kill everyone that's there and we're bound to get some people that are important. Yeah, which is, you know, but I I think that was probably what was done. Like there's this sense of like us as civilians imagining that you know, military during the wars were worried about maybe some collateral damage at a chateau like this. But ultimately, I'm sure that if they knew there was a chateau in France filled with Nazi generals, they'd probably try to take it out. They pro Yeah, they probably would. They would probably send 10 heavily armed, 12 heavily armed convicts <laughs> with grappling hooks <laughs> to yeah. take them out. Yeah. One thing really sticks out for me is is the number of the actors that were military uh, had served in the Second World War too. So Lee Marvin himself, like his whole character throughout the movie, is so insolent and so fed up and just has a hair trigger. Like he's he's he hates the the people above him. It's just a a visceral kind of relationship he has with all of them. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the message of the movie. You know, it's he embodies yeah. the whole message of the movie. And and yet his job in the movie he, is to eliminate that same attitude from the guys below him. So we have these like three layers of command and he has no time for his higher ups. And yet he has to demand the respect of the guys below him. 
So he's just in the middle at kind of at war with the people above him and below him. Do you want to talk a little, a little bit about the book? Because I'm excited to know more about it. You're about to be backed into Bronson's Book Corner. E.M. Nathanson um, puts, puts out The Dirty Dozen in 1965. So it's made into a movie pretty quickly. It's a huge hit. Sells like two million copies um, and then is turned into the movie right away. So there are there's massive differences between the book and the film. It's really interesting because I'd seen the movie many times. So I sit down to read this thing and it starts off. It's it reads just like the movie. Um, and so you're getting introduced to all the guys and, and you're starting to hear their backstories. And then it just goes and goes and goes. And it's a 500 page book. And the book does not, you don't get to the mission. Like the mission itself depicted in the movie is about an hour long. And in the book, it's like the last three pages, which is really bizarre. And you, so you only hear about the mission in the form of this sort of report. But the entire book isn't really about the mission at all. It's all about Reisman and these guys and how they all got there and all their backstories and all their emotional struggles and their training. The entire book is the training. It's an interesting choice then that they made to make the movie so much more about the mission. Uh, I guess that makes sense for an action movie, but um, what about the characters like Bronson's character, uh, Jim Brown's character? A ton of the book, believe it or not, is Jim Brown's character and, and Samson Posey's character. In the movie, Jim Brown plays Robert Jefferson, they changed that name for the for the movie. In the book, his name is Napoleon White, which is maybe a little on the nose. I don't know. Like they changed they changed it for the for the movie. But his experience and um, what these guys did to him and the revenge he extracted and a lot about his attitude, you know, being an African American soldier in World War II. There's a like a lot of the book is taken up with his experience. Uh, he's a super smart character. He gets tons of great scenes. The the bit that Bronson gets in the movie with the like the the ink blots in the book that goes to what would be Jim Brown's character. So they kind of steal from these different characters and move them around. For instance, if I were to say um, happiness, you might say children. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, that was just an example. But if I said ambition, what would you say? I wouldn't say anything. Well, uh, let's give it a try, okay? Weapon. Baseball. Knife. Dodges. Officer. Pitcher. You, uh, you seem to be thinking about just one thing, aren't you? Yeah. What are you thinking about? And then you get Samson Posey, an American Indian character, in the movie, if you blink, you miss it. There's like one brief mention, like Lee Marvin spits out some snide comment to him or something at some point. But in the book, it's a massive part of the book. It's a really interesting book in that regard. It's a real psychological study of all of these men with a war background, but very little in the way of any kind of fighting or, you know, actually war action in the book. Well, Ray, thanks for reading that and for your insights. Uh, that's super interesting. 
the next segment is something we like to do, which is to look at online reviews of, of films and just sort of check in on what other people are saying about the movie. And uh, The Dirty Dozen was generally uh, beloved as an action film, but it was polarizing to some degree as well, just because of, you know, the ending and um, not everybody loves a war movie. So let's have a look at what people are saying here. The Review Roundup. Most of the reviews are 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, big success. Someone says uh, all-star cast. The next one's compelling uh, plot, interesting characters, blah, blah, blah. But then there's a whole bunch that say, you know, the dirty dozen is totally stupid. It's it's evil. Uh, Here's a good one. January 8th, 1999. The dirty, totally stupid. It says, I need not waste words on this film. I was totally repulsed. To put it in simple terms, a totally unrealistic American glorification of World War II, pathetic. And there's a, there's a bunch of those, actually, which is kind of funny. But, uh, you know, here's another one. Another silly war fantasy from the 60s. Very rare, though. Like, mostly it's either 10, 8, 10, 9, 10, or it's a 1. I have to imagine, I'm trying to imagine the, uh, like the series of decisions that results in that review. It's, some, it's 1999, so maybe somebody's going into Blockbuster or something, and there they're was like, I'm looking for a hard-hitting, realistic, nuanced take on war that doesn't glorify anything. Perhaps this dirty dozen looks good, and then like, and then they take home like in this review, they seem they seem surprised. What this this is a glorification of I'm. I'm writing a strongly worded review. I don't know what that person was thinking. Like, yeah, when did they turn the movie off is what I like to know. Did they get through the whole two and a half hours and then they were repulsed by the uh, the ending? Or did they get, turn it off after um, Lee Marvin's character pushes uh, Clint Walker's character, Posey, to the brink and, and he, he attacks him with a knife and then Marvin flips him yeah. with a judo move? Like maybe that's when they, it was too much for them. They turned it off. Tell me, Posey, what did they lock you up for? I mean, what did you do? I already told you that, sir. Well, tell me again. I'm sure that your friends over here would like to know, too. What'd you do, Posey? This fellow wouldn't stop pushing me, and I don't like to be pushed, so I hit him. Killed a man with your bare hands because he shoved you? (laughs) I only hit him once. (laughs) Only hit him once. Another thing that we like to do here is our rating system. I like to try to pin the rating to something that happened in the movie, some prop or maybe some word that was recurring, some something that Bronson does or says throughout the movie that's kind of unusual. In this film, I was really struck by the number of times people said the word lovers. Like it's this war movie and they really refer to one another quite often as as lovers. And I don't think in some sort of sexualized way, just this weird slang kind of term that they use. Well, I know I didn't pick up on this at all. So I like just I was it a slang like what the slang was it a slang of the sixties? Was it a slang of the, the I don't military? Know. Like where do you I think I, I, I'm assuming like, that it's it's uh it's from the sixties, but you now the guys would say things like I think you'll do just fine, sir. Don't give me that. I said, what do you think? I think the first chance one of them lovers gets is going to shoot the major right in the head, sir. 
Thank you, Sergeant. And it's a, a couple of times, at least three times in the movie, they, they use that term, which I found interesting. So today we're gonna rate we're gonna rate this film in terms of lovers. And I'd say let's do uh, for the for the sake of the movie's title, let's go. Uh, how many lovers out of twelve? You want to you want to rate the Dirty Dozen, Ray? Okay, am I going first? Yeah. I am gonna give the Dirty Dozen nine lovers out of twelve. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I really enjoy. I really enjoyed this. I hadn't seen this movie in a long, long time. I too saw it when I was very young probably my introduction to Bronson now that I think about it uh, but I had a blast watching this movie again I think the last we didn't even really talk about the action but I think the like the last the last act of this movie is is amazing as just a thrilling um a war movie and uh yeah I, I loved it it, it does start a, a little bit slow but by the end I was yeah I was really into this one so okay, so but seventy five percent—that's a seventy five out of a hundred. Nine out of nine, nine lovers out of twelve. Okay, I, you know what? I'm gonna have to go myself. I'm gonna have to go with an eleven out of twelve. Eleven lovers out of twelve because the film is just so fascinating. Like there's nothing boring or or uh, like there's this film is not a time waster. It may be long, but the the cinematography, the the directing, like everything about it is worth seeing. So. I don't know how you, I mean, I could think of ways to improve on it. Maybe, you know, it could have been better somehow, but I feel like what they did and how, how uh, uncertain we are at the end of it, uh, in spite of it being what it is, it's a real dichotomy. Like it's a very complex movie um, that was also, you know, a Saturday matinee blockbuster at the time. And that's an incredible achievement. So I, yeah, I think 11 to 12. Well, you got me thinking now my, my mental math might've, it might've been the 12 that, that, uh, messed with me now you're it's only 75 percent. you say you're a hard-ass uh, marker I'm, I'm no math i'm no math whiz but 75 sounds low when you put it like that so i might bump i'm gonna bump mine up to a 10 okay i'm that always feels, trying that feels to better as we do this what are gonna what are my max maxed out full mark bronson movies and how do other movies measure against those so it's always uh yeah, I did 10 feels good. 10 feels good to me. Okay, well listen, this has been a lot of fun. Uh what's next? What do you want to talk about next week, Ray? I don't know. This one was my pick. So the uh, it's up to you. Well, you know, man, I think we should go death hunt. We should hit a, hit death hunt because I'm excited to just shift gears here. We went from, you know, from the 70s back to the 60s. Let's go to the 80s. I think Death Hunt's one that I haven't seen probably since the 80s. So I'd like to see it again. I have not seen it uh, in a long time, and we're we are we're coming to you straight out of a cold snap here, uh, right in now the, in the Canadian North. In the Canadian North, so I'm yeah, I'm definitely feeling, uh, feeling death hunt, 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 death hunt. Well, listen, it's been a blast. Everybody, if you haven't if you haven't watched it yourself, go out and check out The Dirty Dozen. Uh, we, we obviously highly recommend it. You may not love the ending. You may find some of it objectionable, but I think you'll find it entertaining. Yeah, this has been this has been really good, Nick. Yeah, thanks so much, Ray. Hard times on film. Hard times on film. Hard times on film.